Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You'll find this on page 809 in the Black Pew Bible. As we return then uh, to the story of Jesus, we come to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and by the devil. Next week, I anticipate working through this passage a second time and looking more closely at the specific details of each temptation. Today, I want you to see the, the forest, uh, the, the, the context, uh, the flow. Uh, this temptation of Jesus was a battle, a battle of the Messiah to save the world. Jesus came to confront the devil and to destroy the works of the devil. We're going to see some of that here. Let me invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you. And we pray this day that you would speak, that you would be our teacher as you have spoken in this word to us. Now enlighten the eyes of our minds and the knowledge of Christ. Grant us to see the hope that we have in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I wonder if you know it's a dangerous thing to brainstorm a sermon on temptation. You might knock the whiteboard off its easel and drop it right onto and smash your foot. And my, oh my, the things a minister will say when he thinks he's alone in the church. You ever have days like that? Moments like that? How do we hear this story about temptation? 
temptation to sin. The movie, some of you will know, Saving Private Ryan, is based on a true story of four sons all serving in World War II. Private Ryan was behind German enemy lines and an elite team of army rangers was sent to go find him and bring him home as what they thought would be the last surviving son of his parents. Actually, an older brother was in a prison camp. Uh, They had to fight through that ranger uh, group had to fight through German army tanks and soldiers to get to him. And as Captain Miller, the commander of the Rangers squad, lay dying, he drew Private Ryan close to him with his final breath issuing these orders. Earn this. Earn this. They paid the ultimate sacrifice, some did, to rescue Private Ryan. And now here's Captain Miller wanting him to feel the weight of duty to live a life that repays that debt. The movie ends years later, if you saw this, Ryan as an old man on his knees before the uh, grave of Captain Miller saying every day, he tells the white stone there in front of him, the cross, every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all you have done for me. And then in a very heartbreaking moment, he turns to his wife who is with him and with desperation in his voice, he says to her, tell me I have led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. It's a heartbreaking moment in the story. He's a man who has lived his entire life under, we might say, the impossible obligation of earning the sacrifice paid on his behalf by those soldiers. Captain Miller made it perfectly clear to to him in his dying breath that his sacrifice was not a free gift. Ryan would have to pay him back every day for the rest of his life. Earn it, he said. And how would the guy ever know if he'd done enough, right? How do you live under that kind of crushing obligation? Now, why do I say that? Well, some of us are like Private Ryan when we hear a passage like this. We think the Christian life is something like, Jesus died to save me. Now I have to live the rest of my life trying somehow to earn it, to pay him back, to make myself worthy of his sacrifice. And then we feel awfully conflicted when we face and fail before our own temptations. And if we think that way, our life is really driven by guilt and not by gratitude or grace. Maybe you think this is the only real way to motivate people to be obedient. I mean, earn it, Jesus died for you. But actually what you end up doing is oppressing people with guilt and crushing them with a weight of responsibility they cannot bear. If you think this way, you you look at Jesus rebuffing the devil here and you you pay attention to what he does and and you think to yourself, I should do what he does. And don't ever misunderstand me. Following the example of Jesus is a good idea. But if we think that the point of this passage is ultimately, look how Jesus deals with temptation. This is how I ought to deal with my own temptation. And we think that fundamentally that that's what what it's about. We've misunderstood this passage. And 
we don't understand God's method of generating obedience from a new heart and a new life. The Bible's remedy to the guilt of sin, of our failures before temptation. And the Bible's call to obedience is not first copy Jesus' method. We don't begin with our duty. We begin with Christ's obedience for us. Christ's triumph over temptation for us. Christ's victory over the devil for us. And that's where we want to begin as we think through this passage together over the next couple of weeks. To do so today, I want you to think about three things from the passage. Kind of an overarching look at it. I want you to think about the character of the tempter. He's an important part of the story. I want you to think about the core of the temptation. What unites these temptations? And I want you to think about the conquest of Jesus uh, over the tempter. So, in the first place, the character of the tempter of Jesus. The tempter is the devil. There is a real devil, and he seeks to bring about Christ's downfall as he also seeks to bring about our downfall. And that tempter is described in this passage in a variety of ways, and we should pay attention to that. Notice verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What's Jesus doing? He's going into one-on-one combat with the adversary of our souls. And there in the wilderness, verse 2, verse two after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry and the devil tempts him to join the rebellion against God. But Jesus doesn't. So we have this real enemy presented to us. His name is the devil here. And how is he described? Well, he's described, verse 3, as the tempter. In other words, he entices Jesus and people to do evil. He's also described in verse 5 as the devil, which means accuser. So first he entices you to sin, and then he accuses you for sinning, right? He's kind of a short-lived friend, as my old pastor put it. First he beckons you to join him in the rebellion against God, but then once you've done so, he punches you in the face for doing it. And then in verse 10, he's described differently. Jesus says, be gone, Satan. So you have another word there, and Satan there means adversary. He's the enemy who opposes our soul. His goal is our destruction, and Jesus' destruction. And so we need to be reminded, and we just want to pause and sit in this for a moment. We need to be reminded that we are in a real war, a real spiritual battle with real spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There is such a thing as the demonic. Jesus in John 8 called him a liar and the father of lies, right? He lies about who he is so that Paul will say that he masquerades as an angel of light. You would think the devil would be ugly and grotesque and horrifying to see. And, but no, sometimes he's the most beautiful person you've ever seen or in the form of. And the words he speaks drip honey. They don't seem to be venom. He lies about himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in chapter 7 of his wonderful, interesting book, uh, Screwtape Letters, uh, has this sort of insight, it's an insightful and imaginative look, 
in the book uh, about a senior demon speaking to a junior demon about you know, how to destroy people, basically. And the senior demon says to him, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him the picture of something in red tights. Persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. So if you think the evil one, right, wears long red underwear and, and has a you know, forked tail and horns and a pitchfork, well, some people consider that such a ridiculous conception of Satan that the being of Satan then is denied. And Satan would love for you to conceive of him in such a ridiculous way that you would deny that he exists. He also lies not just about himself. He lies to Christians about their relationship with God. We're tempted to believe his lies. Satan will tell you that you're hopeless, you're unlovable, that nobody wants you, that the failures you've had in temptation will get you kicked out of God's family, that he now hates you and doesn't want you. Don't, don't believe that lie. It isn't true. And he tells lies about God. He tells us, you know, if God loves you, if you are his beloved child, well, then your work shouldn't be so hard. If God loves you and you're his beloved child, then you wouldn't be alone right now. If God loves you and you're his beloved child, your life wouldn't be so difficult. That's what Satan tells us, right? He's a deceiver, an accuser, an enticer, and an adversary. Why is God letting him have his day with Jesus? And God is letting him have a day here with Jesus, right? This is not happening by accident. This is not Jesus stumbling into something he wasn't meant to experience. This is all part of the Father's plan. This is part of the Spirit's work. Did you notice that language that Jesus was led by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? This is a deliberate divine combat with Satan that uh, the Spirit of God wants Jesus in and has brought him to. And, uh, And that reminds us then, just reflect on that. In this encounter, the fact of it. Um, think of another example of this in the Bible, right? Job 1 and 2. We're told that it is God who brought Job to Satan's attention. God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And if you're Job, you might be thinking, Well, Father, Could you have picked somebody else to make Satan aware of? What's going on then here? Well, it's not that God is tempting either Jesus or Job to sin. He's not enticing. He doesn't entice anybody to sin. He entices nobody to do evil. God is good. But God can and does use the efforts of evil people or evil evil demonic beings, even the devil himself, to push forward God's own good purposes. God has good purposes in mind. The good purpose is to test Jesus, 
to have him prove his devotion and integrity and who he really is. In fact, that word test and temptation are the same word. It's just translated differently based on context. God tests to prove. Satan, though, has evil purposes in mind to tempt to sin. There's a story told of the Union Pacific Railroad being constructed, and an elaborate trestle bridge was built across a large canyon in the west. Wanting to test the bridge, the builder loaded a train with enough extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload, and then the train was driven out onto the middle of the tracks, and it was left there for an entire day. And one worker asked him, are you trying to break this bridge? No, the builder replied. I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. Very different purpose in mind, though the trial is the same. And so in the same way, the temptations Jesus faced weren't designed by God to see if he would sin, but to prove that he wouldn't sin. And this is so encouraging for you and me. In our own experience, some of you have been faithfully serving the Lord. You've been doing what you know God wants you to do. You've been walking in his way. You're not guilty of any kind of public or scandalous sin. You're not under discipline from the Lord for these things. And yet you have found yourself in the midst of serving Jesus to be in great trial and trouble and heartache and difficulty. Where you are tempted to think hard thoughts of God where you're tempted to give up walking with Jesus. And you're scratching your head and saying, Father in heaven, I'm your child. Why this? Well, just recognize that here's Jesus, the true son of God, perfect in every way, loved by his father, and he is facing trial and temptation. Sometimes you can be exactly where the Lord wants you, And it can be a painful, difficult, challenging, or even tempting place. There are people who will tell you, they think mercifully, but actually cruelly, that if you become a Christian, all your problems will go away. No, actually, if you become a Christian, you might just find yourself not only blessed by the Lord, certainly, but also engaged in real spiritual battles that test and refine in hard ways, your trust in the Lord. Don't ever be surprised when temptations come your way. The disciple is not greater than his master, right? The servant is not greater than his Lord. And if Satan came to Christ, Satan or his demonic beings may just come to you to lie, to entice, to accuse, to destroy. That's the first thing I want you to see about the character of this devil. The second thing I want you to see is the core of the temptation here. What's at the heart? Next week, Lord willing, we'll think about each of them in great particular detail. What's at the heart of these three episodes? Well, I think it's this. The devil tempted him to act contrary to his true identity as the son of God. You remember that this temptation comes immediately after the baptism of Jesus, at which, having come up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, the voice of the Father said, This is my beloved Son, 
With him I am well pleased. And now, at verse 3 and at verse 5, the tempter says, well, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, well, then how about this? And how about that? In other words, prove it, Jesus. Uh, Doubt it or distort it, Jesus. Either fail to believe what the Father says is true of you or fail to live out in life in light of what the Father says of you. And I want you to reflect for a moment by four examples or illustrations how so many of our temptations actually get their strength by inviting us to forget who we are in Christ, who we are to our Heavenly Father, and who our Heavenly Father is to us. Just like Jesus was invited to doubt or distort, what does it mean to be the Son of God? Uh, One example would be the issue of anxiety and worry. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus very famously you know, speaks to his disciples, you who are anxious, don't you know, he says in a paraphrase, don't you know who your father is? He feeds the birds and he doesn't make them store it all up in barns. And he majestically clothes the grassy fields with the most spectacular flowers. And aren't you, Jesus says, more valuable than they, than birds, than grasslands? In other words, don't you know that you are the beloved of God? Don't you think then that he'll care for your needs? Don't you know who your father in heaven is and what he's like? It's an issue of identity. Who are you to the Lord and who is he to you? Or take the issue of our, our sanctification, our, our, of our growth in Christ-likeness. Learning as part of that to say no to sin, Paul in Romans 6 says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Right? I've got grace, and i got grace because I, I need it because of my sins, so should I just keep sinning so I can get more grace? And Paul's answer is, by no means, or God forbid. Right? You're really strong. No, not that at all, but, but why? What's his answer? Romans 6 verse 2, don't you know who you are? He puts it this way, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the, and the force of his argument is how can we, we who are the kind of people who have died to sin, how can we Still live in it. In other words, we who have been united to Jesus and Jesus died and rose. And so in Christ, we have died and risen. We have died to the dominion of sin to command us and its enslavement. And we have risen to newness of life by the Spirit and are to walk in the Spirit. How can then we who are this new person continue to live in sin? He says it's a contradiction of who you are. Now, take a deep breath and fear not. Paul's not so unrealistic to think that that will therefore make you sinlessly perfect in this life. No, he's going to get to Romans 7. 
You've died to sin, but sin hasn't died in you. Sin still lives. Sin still indwells, and you still get enticed by it, and the good you want to do, you don't do. And the evil you don't want to do, that you do. And who will rescue me but Jesus, right? But the point is, part of the power of sin is trying to get you to forget who you are. That you're new in Jesus. Or if you drill that down into a very specific issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as a third example, the Apostle Paul, in his argument against fornication, his argument against premarital sexual activity, or sexual activity outside of marriage, he says, not just don't do that, or, or God's law says stop, don't. Now it does, and God's law is good. But he says... But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's, it's an issue of identity. Of who are we to the Father? Who is the Father to us? Or just as a last example, this is, I think, how the Bible resolves church division issues between Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. People were saying, Christians were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Peter. The really super spiritual said, I follow Christ. But they didn't really mean, they just meant like, you guys are all wrong and we're right. It was another form of division. And what's, what's Paul's argument? Part of it is, as they line up against each other, tearing each other apart, part of his appeal is to our new identity. Why? Because we've been baptized. And baptized identif- baptism identifies you with the one in whose name you are baptized. And he says, look, you weren't baptized into the name of Paul. You weren't baptized into the name of Apollos. You weren't baptized into the name of Peter. You weren't identified with them. So we might say in our own day, he would say, you Presbyterians and you Baptists and you Episcopalians and you Anglicans and you Reformed and you Evangelical. And well, you weren't baptized by Calvin and you weren't baptized by Luther and you weren't baptized by Zwingli and you weren't baptized by Knox and... You 21st century people weren't baptized by John Piper and you weren't baptized by Tim Keller and you weren't baptized by Matt Chandler. And so, look, you were baptized into Christ like every other Christian. And so there's one body, new identity. Do you see, it so much goes back to who do we think that we are before the Father and who does he say that we are? And this is the thing that Jesus is being enticed by the devil anyway to doubt or distort than how that's lived. It's not a surprise that the world harps on this issue of identity and wants you to self-identify in ways that God hasn't told you to self-identify. The world loves tribalism. It loves me versus you, us against them. We're better than you are. We can look down our noses at you because at least we're not as bad as you, right? And so the world in a grip of darkness is always trying to get you to define yourself as, I don't know, American or not American, white or black, male or female, same sex attracted, opposite sex attracted. And, and define who you are by those worldly definitions when God says, don't you know, dear Christian, that what defines you is you are the beloved of the Father. And so this is the work of the devil telling genuine Christians they're not loved by God. They don't really belong to God. Why don't you then just give up resisting? 
why don't you just give up getting up after you fall? Why don't you just chuck the whole thing? And so the tempter struck at a very core issue. And then finally we see Jesus didn't buy it, right? And we see the conquest of Jesus over the tempter. Verses 10 and 11, at the end of the passage, Jesus is victorious. And our only hope is his triumph. Verse 10, then Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan. Verse 11, then the devil left him. Be gone, and Satan slinks away. Satan says, obey me. Jesus doesn't obey him. But the devil, at the end, obeys Jesus. Be gone. Now, he's not gone forever. Luke tells you, actually, he went off to seek a more opportune time. And as you perhaps remember the story of Jesus, he shows up again, very pointedly, when Peter seeks to stop Jesus from going to the cross and suffering and death as part of his mission, Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And then again, when Jesus is on the cross, at the moment of his greatest agony, the crowd picks up the voice of Satan saying, Matthew 27... If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, prove it. Tempting him to doubt or distort who he is. But Jesus didn't come down, and he didn't come down so he could win the victory over the enemy for us fully and finally and decisively upon that cross. And so Jesus, we see here in the beginning and all throughout, was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He never once left the path of obedience to the will of the Father. Adam in the garden had failed before the serpent. Israel in the wilderness failed. You and I, we constantly fail. Jesus never failed. And so he represents us. He doesn't just set a great example, though it's a great example. He's more like in the story of David and Goliath, right? A battle between two representatives of two opposing positions. Pick your best man and we'll go mano a mano, right? And the winner wins not just for themselves. The winner wins for the whole community. This is what Jesus is doing in this temptation. He's winning a victory for all of us, ultimately, over the devil and he's winning it by his obedience to God because God requires perfect and perpetual obedience the kind of obedience none of us is ever given and so as Paul puts it in Romans 5 for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners that's Adam's failure so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's Christ's work applied to us. And only when you see that will you see that salvation is a gift through the finished work of the death and resurrection and triumph of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't come to you to come full circle and to close. 
He doesn't come full so come to you like a Captain Miller in the story we began with, like Captain Miller to Private Ryan. He doesn't come to you and say, well now, since I've done all of this for you, earn it. Right? Don't make me regret all I did in giving up my life for you. That's, that's, that's a satanic lie. Jesus obeyed and he obeyed to the point of cross in order that you might live. And we aren't living in order to pay him back because we're in debt. And we need to earn our way out from under that debt. Jesus died for us. Jesus fought for us. Jesus was victorious for us so that as a free gift, you could be safe in him and share his triumph over the devil. You will have losses in battle along the way. But the decisive victory over the enemy is already accomplished. It's yours in Christ. And in the end, he can't keep you away from the Savior and he can't keep you out of heaven. You're not a debtor to Jesus in the sense that you need to bear the burden of guilt because you just don't live the example of Jesus. You, on the other hand, are the beneficiary of his mercy and kindness and grace that you might live out of love to him who so loved you. And when you do fall before temptation, then you can get up and live to fight another day, right? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So rest in Christ, dear friends. All has been done. The debt has been paid. The requirements of the law have been satisfied. The devil has been defeated. Jesus loved you and he says to you, and at this table he says to you, I love you and I still love you and I gave myself for you and I won you and I make you mine. And if you'll grasp that, you'll love him back. And so you'll long to flee temptation and to learn to fight temptation because you're grateful. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus. You know uh, our divided hearts, how uh, sin is pleasurable. And so as we stumble into it or plunge headlong, um, we do so with no thought of you and only thought of ourselves, even as believers. Forgive us for that. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pardon our iniquity and remind us again of the love and grace of Christ and his accomplishment for us. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen.